0: your congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Someone's parting last words are very important. Perhaps Mum's here, you've, before you've left the kids at home, you would write down a note with very detailed instructions that the kids had to follow. And in a way, this is what Christ did before he ascended into heaven. As we read in Matthew 28, he gave parting words before going up into heaven. And so those parting words are very important. They are the note left behind. As God's children, we are to study, to treasure closely to our hearts those words and to follow them very carefully but our Lord's parting words to us are very different from the note that a mother leaves her children. While Jesus is not bodily present, yet because he is also divine, he is always with us. And so Jesus is not like a parent who leaves the kids at home with a, to their own devices with a note to follow. Rather, Jesus leaves a note, but he is also actively and powerfully with us. He's not just a bystander up in heaven watching us from a pie. He's not a watchmaker who turns the watch and leaves us to ourselves. Rather, God, our Lord Jesus Christ, is among us. He is working and doing mighty deeds in the world. We could see this in the first seven letters, for instance, in the, to the seven churches in the book of Revelation, the first three chapters of Revelation. And so Christ's words to us at his ascension into heaven is less like a mom leaving instructions on the counter for us to follow. Rather, it's more like a general giving instructions to his soldiers before he himself goes out leading the charge against the enemy. He's like a general giving instructions to his soldiers before leaving or charging against the enemy. And so this afternoon, we'll be looking at Genesis 28 alongside Christ's parting words in Matthew 28. In both these passages, God leads his people to fulfill his redemptive plans promises. We see God's same promise, which is the same for this sermon in both these texts. I am with you always to the very end of the age. And so first we see the mediatorial ladder between heaven and earth. In Genesis 28, uh, his, Jacob's father Isaac sends him off, saying in verse three earlier, God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. May God give you the blessing of Abraham and to your offspring with you that you may take possession of this land of our sojournings that God gave to Abraham. And so in this text, the context, Jacob is fleeing away from Esau. You probably know that story but Jacob's also leaving to try and find a wife with whom he can grow and receive these promises, the blessings of the covenant God made with Abraham. And as he leaves, our God gives Jacob a vision, a vision to call him to faith and to direct his path. Jacob dreamed about a ladder or something like a flight of steps. If you imagine like the pyramid, a flight of steps going up it. And this staircase, it connected heaven and earth. And God was present with Jacob by means of this staircase. And in Christ, brothers and sisters, we have the surety of this. In Christ, we have a path connecting earth, humanity, and heaven. Our Lord says, I am the way, the door to the Father in heaven, One commentator, Matthew Henry, writes that Jesus is this ladder, the foot on earth in his human nature, the top in heaven in his divine nature. Christ is the way. All God's favors, blessings come to us through him. And all our services go to him by Christ. Since we are as the church, Christ's body, and he is our very own head, by ascending into heaven, Christ is assuring us that there is indeed a connection to Jesus, to God in heaven. So if you doubt the closeness of God, remember Jacob's ladder. Jacob saw how close God's presence was to him. Remember that your Savior, Jesus Christ, is your mediator, the one who is bringing together heaven and earth. And he has ascended into heaven and has sent his Holy Spirit in us. And he is ministering to us through his angels. And so put your trust in Jesus as the one pathway to eternal life with God in heaven. And in the new earth. And next, God then assures Jacob of who he is actually. He says, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, and the God of Isaac. I am the God that your grandpa and your dad told you about, the one that made a covenant with them. I am the Lord all caps, the Lord, all caps, Yahweh, the one who is always present, the one who is, the one who was, and the one who is to come. Centuries later, in Matthew 28, verse 19, Jesus also revealed who God was, saying, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus more fully reveals who this God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is. He is the three in one. And so, brothers and sisters, this is who our God is. He's the God who works in history. He's the God who works with historical people, Jacob and the disciples. Even though he is transcendent and eternally, he makes these covenantal relationships with ordinary people like you and me. He makes himself known to us through Jesus. This is one of the reasons that Jesus actually ascended into heaven, so that he could make God more fully known, so that the knowledge of God throughout the earth may grow. You might think to yourself, well, we could know God more if we actually could see Jesus bodily. But as we confess in Lord's Day 18, Jesus sends us his own spirit, the Holy Spirit. And Christ teaches us that this is for our benefit because as he says in John 16, verse 13, but when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will will speak only what he hears and he will tell you what is yet to come. The Spirit equipped the disciples with a knowledge of God and he now equips us to reveal to the unbelieving world who God is, this knowledge of God. Father, Son, and Spirit the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God who seeks lost sinners. The Spirit works in people's hearts through the word and through our sharing of the gospel so that people may understand and be guided to the truth of Jesus. And so after God reveals himself to Jacob and then to the disciples as well, our Lord then promises Jacob the blessings first given to Abraham. We see that God gives promises. Verse 13 and 14 says, I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and Your offspring. Abraham was promised the land of Canaan, numerous descendants, and that his family would be a blessing to everyone else. And the same promises are given to Jacob. But notice that God also promises they will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and the south, beyond the land of Canaan, it seems. And so here we begin to see the seeds of the Great Commission, God's global plan for salvation. These promises to Abraham and now to Isaac are promises that are given to Christ and fulfilled to him and his body, the church. For instance, in Matthew 28, we read, then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, all the earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Jesus is the descendant of Abraham and Jacob. In Jesus, all the promises to Jacob in our text, number Genesis 28, are fulfilled and superseded made more full the father gave to jesus authority over heaven and all the earth not just the land of canaan as dave king david had and not just all the earth but also heaven itself and this is why jesus had to ascend to heaven so that he could take up his reign not only over the earth but also in heaven, over all. And it's on this basis, on Christ's authority over everything, that he now calls the disciples to go and make disciples of all nations. God promised to them. God promised in uh, Genesis 28, you will spread out to the west and to the east, north and south. Well, one pastor remarked about this that The Pacific coast where we are now living, that's about as far away you can get from Jerusalem on this earth. And so brothers and sisters here before you, you have evidence, evidence of the promises fulfilled. We are at the ends of the earth from where the church first received the great commission. And so we see how powerfully God has worked to bring the light of the gospel here to us, to work out the promise he gave to Jacob and then to Christ and his church. But with this promise, there's also an obligation, an obligation, command to be fruitful, to multiply. And with the authority given to Christ, there's also the obligation of the Great Commission God also called Jacob to be a blessing to the nations. And so we too, brothers and sisters, through Christ's great commission, are to be a blessing as well. The body of Christ, here united to our head in heaven, our Lord, must spread out and must disciple the nations of all the earth. And this is done by the spreading of the gospel. And as it takes root in individuals' hearts, they are baptized, them and their children, into the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. And they're brought into this body of Christ, into the church membership. We could say that this is part one, part one of the Great Commission, bringing people and families into the church. And we might say that the second is to teach them and to obey them everything Christ has commanded us. And so all of God's covenant people, believers and their children, are to be discipled, trained, taught, mentored, and cared for. The Great Commission demands that we care for the souls of those who have been baptized. We are to disciple, instruct, and guide anyone that has been baptized You may have noticed that there are baptized believers coming to our church and also to Surrey in general from all over the world. Well, the Great Commission also calls us then to disciple them, incorporate them into the local body so that the whole church may be built up. Or there are believers in other churches where they are not being discipled and taught everything that Jesus has said in the Bible. And they too need discipling. We often forget, when we shouldn't, that this too is a part of the Great Commission. I think of the zeal of the early reformers. The zeal they had to train and teach and rescue those that were stuck in the Roman church who were being malnourished and misled. And so too, we have a calling from the Great Commission to do that kind of work. But returning now to Jacob, how is he to know if he would have children and children who would live in Canaan? Currently in this part of the story in Genesis, Jacob has no wife, He's had to leave his entire family behind. He's traveling to an unknown, faraway place. He doesn't know for sure if he'll ever return because, as we know, his stronger brother has threatened to kill him. Or what about the 11 disciples in Matthew 28? How can these 11 men standing there on a mountain how can they hope to disciple the entire world? Imagine giving that ta- being, being given that task. And it becomes even more bleak when you think about, well, their leader, Jesus Christ, has just ascended into heaven. And what about you, brothers and sisters? The last years have obviously had their difficulties with members moving away or drifting from the faith. How can we here hope to fulfill the the great commission? Well, let's look at God's encouragement, God's word. Let's look at the power he promises us. God first says to Jacob in Genesis 28, verse 15, I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised. God doesn't send Jacob off, leaving him with instructions like a parent, as we mentioned. Rather, God is like the leader who gives him instructions and then leads from the front. God says, I am with you, protecting you, guiding you. In you, I will accomplish my plans. I will not leave you until I have finished what I said I would do. Our Lord Jesus, being one with the Father, says the same in Matthew 28, verse 20. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. I am with you always, always. What comforting words those are For the church, what comforting words he gives as he ascends into heaven. It may seem that he has left us behind and we could sometimes think or feel that way. But brothers and sisters, hear these words from Scripture, from your Savior with new ears. Hear them with fresh ears. I am with you always even though He ascended bodily, He is not abandoning us or leaving us on our own to fend for ourselves, to accomplish the Great Commission on our own. No, by His divinity, brothers and sisters, He is working in us to accomplish His goal, His mission, His plan to make disciples of all nations. When we know that Christ is leading us from on high and also within us and among us we follow his directions we trust in his power not our own when we realize Christ is with us that it is his power and might that have made disciples of all the nations from Jacob that he has blessed the nations through Jacob and Jesus Christ, when we realize the divine power that is at work among us, then we can expect great things to happen because Christ is with us always. We know that the nations can be discipled. Even through us, weak class vessels of clay, I think of Old Testament examples of this kind of trust in God. I think of example like Jonathan and his armor bearer, who stormed the castle of the Philistines and took over an entire castle by themselves. Or I think of the account of David fighting Goliath, the giant. Well, what about these, these saints? How did they do these great works of God? Well, when we look at these accounts of history, what scripture says, we see that it's not because they trusted in themselves, but because they trusted God's power, God's promise to them that I am with you always to the very end. And you can tell when a church believes in the ascended Christ who is with us. When a church with childlike faith, despite its outwardly bleak circumstances, pursues the great commission. I think about this church's own history, how the Lord worked mightily through it, even though it began with pretty much only uprooted immigrants having to start life all over. Those who have been here a long time can probably tell you about all the amazing mission work they were responsible for and supported across the globe while at the same time working just to make ends meet in a new country or think of the number of professors sent from this church to train gospel preachers and missionaries talk about a history of great commission work brothers and sisters that's the history of what christ has done through us and among us and so continue to build on this history not out of guilt, but because of the grace of Jesus Christ. Because we know, we know that by God's grace, Jesus Christ is with us always. And so we don't fulfill the great commission out of fear, but out of joy and boldness. And because of that grace, the presence of God We boldly disciple the nations knowing that our Lord Jesus, our Savior, has authority in heaven and on earth. Now I want to draw our attention to one final aspect that we see in both of our texts. What should our response be to all of this, all that we've heard? Why is God doing all this? Our initial response to such questions should always be in line with the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question answer one. There the catechism says, what's the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So why is God doing all of this? So that he may be glorified and what should our response be after hearing who God is, how God sent Christ to be the mediator between God and heaven and us on earth? How should we respond to God's promises, to hearing that Christ has authority over heaven and earth and that he is with us always and that he is working through us his mighty plans to redeem people from every nation? How, what should our response be Well, it should be to glorify God, to delight in him and enjoy who he is and what he is doing. This is central to our Sunday worship, to our family worship. Glorifying God and enjoying him is central. We read in Genesis 28, now connecting this to our text, Genesis 28 talked about, I'll quote, read it now. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord's in this place, and I was not aware of it. And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. And early the next morning, he took the stone he placed under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on it, and he called that place Bethel though the city used to be called Luz. Here we see in this text that Jacob knows he is in the presence of God. And so his response is one of worship. It's to set up a pillar, to anoint it with oil, naming the place the house of God. This is temple imagery. And in our next text, Matthew twenty-eight seventeen. We read that when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. The disciples knew that before them was the very presence of God. In Jesus Christ, the fullness of deity dwelt. And so the response is worship, glorifying God and enjoying him. Let us not doubt, brothers and sisters, Christ's authority, Let's not doubt his presence or his power. God has said that he is with us always. Let us trust his promise. What a joy it is to have a God who comes down to be with us. Let's rejoice that we have the opportunity, the immense privilege to enjoy our creator's presence Let's continue to gather to worship and glorify our ascended Christ, to meet with one another and be with him. And let us now just do just that, and we'll do that by worshiping our Lord who is with us always, the Lord who leads us and delivers us from Satan's lure and those who remain under his lure. Let us now sing from hymn 40,